So I don't think the community hall is usually decorated like this, though it is, I do like it, it's rather festive. Uh, we had a couple of New Year's events here and apparently they were, had really good turnouts and I'm sure they were, were quite uh, enjoyable, but I'm happy to <coughs> reap the benefits of their creativity and uh, in lighting. So here we are, it's the third day of 2011. But in saying that, we really have to realize that that's just totally a concept. You know, we can be so uh, time-centric and Western-centric. It's not 2011 in a lot of other parts of the world. I mean, it's not 2011 in any real sense of anything, is it? It's, it's all arbitrary. <laughs> but in Buddhist countries, in Thailand, it's, it's uh, 2554 BE, Buddhist era because they create their calendar from what they think is, and we can't know for sure, but what we generally, what's generally taken to be the year of the Buddha's birth. That's how they mark their calendar. And their new year is in May, which is the month that's generally considered to be the month the Buddha was born. So, you know, as we stand here confidently saying it's now 2011, we have to realize it's not really. It's, you know, it's just something we all agree on. But whatever calendar you use, um, this time of year is special. We, you know, we call it the holiday season. It's this kind of both beautiful but slightly manic time from Thanksgiving to New Year, um, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you want to celebrate. You know, it's, this, it's this time of gathering together with friends, of, of appreciation, of generosity, of bounty, of blessings. But it's also a time of year that um, you can understand why natural rituals, whatever other kind of nature religions uh, created rituals around this time, this, this darkening of the environment as the days get shorter and shorter and shorter and this natural turning inwards that happens. It's a time for hibernation. The animals hibernate, the birds fly south. Um, it's that there's something that happens that we're all part of and all affected by. And so it's a really natural that to take some time at this time of year to reflect, to be a little more quiet, to be a little more contemplative and um, really start to um, relate in a different way to the busyness of our lives and perhaps take stock or uh, consider what we value, what we're, what, we've, what we're grateful for. And once we pass the solstice, we pass December 21st, then there's that other beautiful movement that happens, just like happened with the turning on of a switch, of the growing of the light, this sense of renewal, of refreshing, of things emerging again out of the quiet of the hibernation. Here in California, of course, we can see that happening already. I mean, we have this amazing weather and the grass is already turning green. If you're in Massachusetts, you would not be talking about the coming of the light and the greening of the hills. You'd be you know, huddled inside in sub-zero temperatures a lot of the time. But there's just that general movement. Once we go into the darkness, 
what's natural is this coming out into the light, coming out into renewal. And so it's a natural time for, for a lot of reflection, this time of the holiday season. Even Christmas, you know, I'm, I consider myself a Buddhist now, but there's many things about Christmas that I love. I love the lights. I mean, who doesn't love the bright lights, the colored lights, this sense of creating beauty in the darkness, this sense of um, uh, something to turn towards that, that brightens our spirit, this sense of uh, the true meaning of Christmas. The, the, you know, it's a story of, of hope and love and gratitude. It's a story about blessings. And so we can all um, learn something from the story of Christmas from this time. I was just recently in India, and one of my Indian friends just said, I love, she loves Christmas. I'm sort of, what? You're Hindu. Why do you love Christmas? And it's, you know, Christmas has become a big holiday throughout the year, not anything very much to do with the birth of Jesus, but because people love the lights and the Christmas trees and the ideas of presents and cards and gifts and getting together with family. You can go anywhere throughout the world, especially in Asia, and, and uh, we'd go into Indian hotels and they'd have Christmas trees at the center of the lobby and all the lights would be being put up. Because there's something that really touches people about this, this gesture of celebration in this time of darkness. I'm actually Australian. I don't know if you can tell from my accent. Um, I've been here and out of Australia a long time, so it's gotten mixed. But you know, many people would ask, well, what's Christmas like in Australia? Because it's probably hard for many of you to conceive. It happens in the summertime. And this whole idea of Christmas being in the, the time of darkness and the sense of renewal, we were on the beach in bathers, you know, and, and uh, you know, my mother would try to imitate the English style of uh, a, a Christmas meal with, you know, huge roasts and, you know, baked vegetables and steamed pudding that she slaved over and had hanging in muslin um, out, uh, out, you know, in the, out in the basement. Um, and it was often ridiculous. It'd be 100 degrees, and we'd be, you know, tucking into this huge meal, and, and you know, be light, uh, of course, very late into the evening. And it wasn't until I moved to the, this part of the world, to, first to Europe, to England, and then to here, that I really got to appreciate the, the meaning, the, the symbolism behind these lights and how it represents this movement from darkness and inwardness into this sense of possibility, into this sense of new life, of renewal, of openness. So it's a, it's a powerful season for, for all of us, I'm sure. And it's natural that we take some time to do some reflection. The quietness, just the rain we've been having recently, keeping us indoors instead of out in do, doing whatever we normally enjoy doing. And in that quiet time, what, are we, what does the mind turn towards? What do we reflect on? What, what's been of value to us in the past year? And what are we looking to cultivate, to open to in the coming year? This is a really important thing to do as we go through this turning of the season. And I'm only having to guess that the reason there's so many of you here tonight is it's part of your New Year's resolution is, you know, I'm going to come to Monday night more often or I'm going to learn to meditate, I'm going to get more serious about my practice. And so you've all showed up here bright and bushy-eyed, ready to start meditating. 
Well, um, I hope it continues for you, but personally, I've never been a huge fan of making New Year's resolutions that have a lot of numbers in them, metrics in them. You know, I'm going to do X number of this or lose 10 pounds of weight or go to the gym three times a week. For me, I just see that as setting myself up for failure because anytime you put and create an ideal around something, put a number on something, it's just inevitable that we're not going to match that ideal. You know, we're imperfect, vulnerable, flawed creatures and we're not going to match these ideals that we make up in the craziness of New Year's Eve. I often think it's kind of ironic that many people make resolutions about their health on New Year's Eve. The, perhaps the one night of the year they stay up too late, drink too much, or outside, you know, on the darkest night of the year, you know, somewhat inebriated celebrating and then they, they're, you know, their resolution is all about getting healthy and it's no wonder it doesn't quite all come together. We've really got to be um, a lot more honest about what we think we value and how we might actually manifest that in our lives and really, as I said, take some quiet time rather than charging ahead with these ideas of perfection and, and shaping ourselves up in some way. I know for myself, whenever I think, you know, oh, I'm going to go on a diet and, and lose 10 pounds, in my imagination, what I imagine is the thin, you know, happy me, and what I don't think about is the hungry, grumpy me that's more likely to be the result of, you know, trying to do some rigid kind of diet. We're always um, susceptible to these ideas of perfection and it's not the reality that we live with. How do we align ourselves more closely to what's uh, really important to us, really valuable, and actually possible for us to cultivate or relate to in our lives? So rather than resolution, rather than having some numbers game that we play about what success and failure is, more helpful, I think, to talk about orientation. What, what do we want to cultivate? What are our aspirations a as a sense of movement in our lives rather than something to gain, rather than some um, thing we're going to achieve, some place we're going to get to where we'll be different and then we'll be happy, you know, then we'll be successful, then we'll be lovable or whatever it is we're hoping to achieve. So to have some sense of spaciousness or possibility about this contemplation, if, if you've engaged in it already, and I'm going to encourage us to do a little bit uh, later this evening. So I really want to set the ground for having it be very gentle. In the practice of Buddhism in meditation, we do talk about uh, using determination. It's one of the paramis, one of these ten qualities that uh, the Buddha-to-be developed before he was awakened that are really helpful for us to develop in our daily life. So determination is one, patience, uh, loving-kindness, equanimity, all of these beautiful qualities. Determination is one of them. But, uh, and the Pali word is aditana. So we'll often talk about in our practice cultivating aditana or, or even making an aditana. But the way we usually frame this kind of determination is with the phrase or the phrasing, may I. 
may I develop this, may I open to this. You probably know this phrasing from the metta practice that I'm sure many of you have done, the practice of loving kindness, where through um, repeating over and over again these wishes for well-being for oneself and other, others, we really create a sense of friendliness and acceptance towards all experience. The, the common phrasing of the metta practice is, may I be safe, may I be happy. And I love that that's the way it's done because it allows for the possibility that I'm not. You know, I can't say I am happy or I will be happy or I should be happy. But to allow or to open to the possibility, may I be happy, to wish that for myself. So this is the attitude that I think is really helpful to develop towards any self-improvement program that you're going to embark upon and really to see the, the futility of that as, as Ajahn Sumedho often says, it's not the self that gets enlightened. So you, know, you can kind of work on that on the side, but really there's something deeper going on here. We're so, um, such a numbers-oriented society or culture though, you know, everything you see, you know, at getting to the end of the year, what do you see? The 10 best this, the 100 best that, the things you shouldn't miss, the, the best films, the best books, and it's, you know, it's inevitable that we take up some of those. I've got to read all those books or see all those movies. There's a whole industry now created about the book this woman wrote called A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And, you know, so people take that up. It's like, that's my life's purpose, is to see stuff. It's like, hello? And, you know, I, I looked it up, and now there's a whole industry around it. There's calendars, and there's tours, and there's T-shirts, and there's, you know, like checklists of, of, of just seeing stuff. That's not what a life is about, just seeing stuff. A life is about how we live it, how we relate to ourselves, the peace of mind and heart that we can, can uh, uh, access, and how we are with others, what our relationships are like, what our, what our sense of care and compassion is like. So as we do these contemplations about what we wish to cultivate, as I said, more um, just shifting our relationship to our experience, changing how we relate to things, much more valuable than ticking off a checklist or going and, and seeing stuff. And in doing that, it can't be done in isolation. It's not like, oh, I'm going to be a kinder person this year or I'm going to be more compassionate or more generous. We have to really look and see. I mean, these are all good things to wish to cultivate or to value. But what would it actually take? What would need to change? about the way you relate to yourself, the way you relate to your everyday experience, for that to be cultivated. These things don't happen in isolation. They can't happen in isolation. There's a whole interdependence and cause and effect relationship about everything we experience. So we need to have a big, big lens and a big picture as we think about you know, what would it mean to be a kinder person, to develop more compassion or generosity or patience, whatever it might be that you're thinking you might cultivate. <clears throat> so I think it's helpful to really 
see this as a cultivation. It's not a numbers game. It's not a, you know, a, 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 you know I ha need, I'm here at A and I need to get to B and then I'll be a better person. But really more of a journey or even an exploration. And rather than a journey where it's where are you going, it's what are you cultivating and what are you bringing with you on that journey? What baggage or what supports? Um, what, what's actually helping you in this aspiration that you have for yourself? And what's weighing you down? What can you let go of? These Im this imagery of journey and uh, movement is, is really strong for me at the moment because I just got back from three weeks in India, I said. And what I was doing um, in that time was going on pilgrimage to the holy sites related to the birth, life, and death of the Buddha. I actually made the journey first time last year um, in the fall with my husband, Guy Armstrong, who's also a teacher here. We'd long wanted to do this trip. It's, it's the you know, holy pilgrimage for Buddhists to go to India, to the land of his birth and the place where he taught. And so we did it, just the two of us. And it was really powerful to actually be in the places where these teachings began, these teachings that are still impacting us, obviously, all individually, but really uh, so many millions of people today, both in this country but all over the world, being impacted by these powerful and, and freeing teachings of the Buddha. And the trip impacted me so much, um, I decided that I would like to share it with others. So I actually um, arranged and helped organize a group of students from the DPP program that I mentioned earlier, Dedicated Practitioners Program, people who just completed two years of studying the Buddha's texts and teachings um, and offered the trip to them. So about 15 of us went to India uh, the beginning of December and uh, got on a bus and toured around the holy sites. And it was quite a journey, quite an amazing um, experience to do in that. It was really like being on retreat with this group of people, all dedicated practitioners, um, all with a similar sense of connection to the teachings. And we actually, uh, the tour was actually organized by a man called Shantam Seth, who came here, I think, in October. Was anyone here when he spoke? Great. Well, I did the trip with him, and he's really an amazing person, quite a, a beautiful man and, and uh, so knowledgeable in the, the history both of India but, of course, of uh, the Buddha and the life of the Buddha. But just being on this journey, as I said, these Im this imagery that the Buddha used a lot of being on a journey, the, the, the process of being on journey as a as a life-changing experience became so clear. And I was just talking about baggage. It was really interesting to see people's different traveling styles from the woman who had one small, you know, carry-on and that was, she had everything she needed to the other, on the other end, someone who had two suitcases that they dragged around with them everywhere, including, you know, one of everything and two of some things that, you know, you couldn't do without. And it was just interesting to see, you know, they both, there on the trip with these very different relationships to what luggage is. And that's what a lot of us are like, you know, how much stuff do we drag around that we don't actually need? This is an important reflection. When we're thinking about changing, it's not so much what are we moving towards, what are we willing to let go of? What's, what's no longer serving us?
But one of the things I loved about, I love about going to India, I've been there many times, I actually lived there for about a year, a year and a half in the early 80s and have been back a number of times since. Even though obviously India has moved into the 21st century like everywhere else, and it's, uh, I read the statistic that actually more, pe people in India, more people in India have access to a cell phone than have access to a toilet. Um, you know, these days the rickshaw drivers all have cell phones. But there's many parts of India that haven't changed. And so you enter this kind of timeless realm where people are still plowing fields with bullock carts and planting rice by hand and winnowing uh, wheat um, by hand, you know, threshing wheat, you know, on a stone, having oxen trampling the rice and the wheat by going in a circle. We saw all this day in, day out, and, and there is something powerful about being there and seeing that, knowing that we're walking, as they say, in the footsteps of the Buddha, the places where he lived and taught and walked and, and uh, had his whole life, and we were seeing the same sights that he saw. There are some aspects of India, of rural India, that haven't changed at all. People are still living in mud houses, making uh, patties out of cow dung that they dry and then burn for fuel. Um, on the roads, you can see every possible conveyance, from pedestrians to rickety old bicycles to bicycle rickshaws to donkeys to horses to car oxen to water buffalo to horses and elephants and cars and buses and trucks. And they're all there all at once sometimes. I mean, it's just amazing how our driver managed to navigate uh, the way through that. But again, that sense of journey means navigation. You know, you have your direction, but you can't be fixed on it. If our driver just sat in the middle of the road and said, this is where I'm going, we'd be dead a long time ago. It involves a lot of negotiation and swerving and slowing down and speeding up. This is what we need to understand as we embark on this journey of practice. And this timeless realm that India offers, often, even though we were sharing the teachings of the Buddha, India herself was the biggest teacher. For those of you that have been to India, you probably know this. There's something about the um, rawness of life there. Everything is in the open. You see life and death in the open. People live their lives out, they do their washing, their toiletry, their, their shopkeeping, their cooking. As we pass through these towns and villages, whether on the bus or on foot, we would see all of this. We would see this um, life being lived very, very um, openly. And, you, you know, both a, lessons big and small in that appreciate everything that we have. Whatever situation any of us here in this room are in, we are all really blessed. You know, as challenging as our lives might be, difficult financially or relationship or work, we have so many blessings compared to the millions of people in India who have so little. Yet, at the same time, got to sense how each life is precious to each person that we saw and we met. Their own life was precious. So not this sense, ultimately, of any division. Really a sense of connecting to the humanity. And uh, 
one day we actually um, were, often we were in the bus and we'd walk around certain sites, but one day we, we got the opportunity to walk for a few miles through the fields, through the countryside of India. It's actually not that easy to do. I hadn't done it that often before through the flatlands of India, walking along rice paddies, where you walk along the little dike between the rice paddies, and just into the silence of the countryside. You know, so often we're in small towns, but still busy with taxis and buses and stores and people selling stuff, to get out into the countryside. And again, seeing a man plowing with uh, a wood plow and two oxen. The young girls we met, they had their little sickle knives and they were out cutting wild mustard greens and gathering them in their shawls and sort of stopped and looked at us and giggled and laughed because we were out of place there. We were the, obviously the strangers, the weird ones. Just to get a sense of that timeless realm. Most of our lives are so bound up in time, in appointments, in busyness, in schedules, and the body doesn't ultimately do well under that kind of environment. The pressure of that doesn't, it gets to all of us eventually. We need to step out of that, whatever avenue we can find for that, whether it's vacation, weekends, to take the time to be out of time. And India, and especially the countryside of India does that. You just step into the rhythms of the planting of the rice and the threshing of the wheat and the, the slowness of the water buffalo. You don't hurry water buffalo. You know, whatever pace they're going at, that's the pace you go at, you know, when they're, you're surrounded by them walking through the fields or whatever. You really get a sense of that. And this one village that we walked through, again, you know, we were quite, un it was unusual for them to see Westerners walking through their little village, but they're all quite friendly and open. And because we were with Shantam who spoke Hindi, some women came up to us and we were able to talk to them about how did they make rice, you know? We take so much, we get rice from a plastic packet in the supermarket. They make their food. And, and so she showed us, you know, the stalk of rice and how they would husk it and then polish the grain. And she was so um, just relaxed about taking that time to talk with us. And I know what it'd be like if, you know, I stopped you uh, in the middle of your busy day and said, you know, tell me how you do everything that you do to make your life work. You'd be like, you know, come back to me in three weeks and make an appointment. There was just this sense of ease about her um, uh, sharing with us. And, you know, I don't want to idealize an agrarian lifestyle. I, I know how hard they work and how hard it can be to live that kind of life. But at the same time, we also saw a lot of ease of people relaxing and willing to sit down and talk with each other, to sit and share a story. There was just something really precious about that teaching, about being fully present for whatever was right in front of one. And so that's why we value retreat, why we value that time of stepping out of the busyness of our lives and actually dropping the sense of having to do anything, really. I mean, sometimes retreats can feel quite full. I know there's a schedule and you get up very early at night and it seems the end of the day is, is quite long and late. But actually, you know, no one's keeping track. You don't have to do anything. You just have to pay attention. 
And the, any, any place that you go into that's somewhat sacred has that sense of timelessness about it. And I think that's almost what we love about sacred places, about monasteries, about holy sites, about retreat, is dropping that sense of busyness and doing and getting and having and just being present, letting them speak to us in some way. And our heart naturally opens as we allow that process to happen. So really encourage you to find that timeless realm, that timeless space, however you might do that in your lives. For many of us, it's doing our daily meditation or yoga or some form of exercise, being out in nature. I mean, again, we're so blessed to live in this area, to have access to these beautiful green hills. One of the the sadnesses of being in India was to see the level of pollution that's present both on the land and the waters, but especially the air, the sky. Um, even in the countryside, there was terrible pollution from burning fires and, and uh, industry and construction and, you know, just all of their cooking is done on fires. Terrible air quality and, you know, imagining these young children growing up and, and never really knowing a, a blue sky or a a lung full of fresh air. It, I so appreciated getting back to Marin, and just counting that blessing of having fresh air and, and blue skies and green grass to look at. So if this is a value for you, we have to make it a priority. How to find that timeless realm, even if it's a short time. There's that place of sitting and being quiet, walking quietly in silence out in nature, exercising, where you let go of the sense of really trying to get stuff and just pay attention. This is what mindfulness teaches us or shows us, this, the power of mindfulness. I was going to say the magic of mindfulness. I mean, there's some way in which it is quite magical, but it's not as though, you know, you just sit down and close your eyes and something magical happens. Still the same old body, same old mind going crazy, same old aches and pains. But something different happens when we start to pay attention. I often feel like our minds, our brains are like the restless two-year-old. It's going, mommy, 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 pay attention, mommy, mommy, mommy. And, you know, you, you try to be busy and get, get on with everything else, but it's only when you actually stop and start to pay attention that the two-year-old that's throwing the tantrum, our minds, begins to relax and actually show up, be present. It's a poem I love by Mary Oliver. I'm sure uh, you all know her beautiful poems. And she writes so often about being out in nature and nature as her teacher. This is one called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, inside this soft world of herself, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation, nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant. 
but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? Something magical does happen when we start to pay attention, when we let go of having an agenda, having a task, something to accomplish, but just fully be, inhabit our senses, whether we do it formally in meditation or it's just in our openness to the world and everything around us. At the same time, we don't just become blobs. Meditation, even though it's a lot about just being with what is, there is cultivation. I actually think mindfulness itself has intelligence in it. As we pay attention, what needs to be known, what needs to happen, what needs to be let go of reveals itself very naturally. It's a very organic kind of process. And it's been very traditional to talk about IQ, you know, intelligence quotient. And Daniel Goleman has um, come up with the term EQ, emotional intelligence. Was it EI, really? Emotional intelligence, EQ, emotional quotient. Really talking about how it's necessary for us to have some sense of wisdom in our emotional life, that that's hugely what impacts our sense of well-being. Well, I think even more these days we can talk about MQ, mindfulness quotient. What level of presence are we bringing to our experience, to ourselves, to our inner experience, but also to our outer sense of connection, to our friendships, our relationships, our work? Really, this quality of mindfulness is something that reveals what needs to be known. I've learned to have such faith, such trust in mindfulness. It it's actually is quite magical, but not in the way we wish it was, that you know we just meditate and everything will be okay. What actually has to happen is the cultivation of these qualities that are there, that are innate. Mindfulness reveals them, just like turning on the lights. But we need to keep the electricity flowing for the lights to stay on. We need to actually cultivate these qualities. So there's purification that happens in this work. As we let go of the baggage, as we let go of what no longer supports our sense of well-being, our sense of connectedness, mindfulness reveals that over and over again. As we pay attention, those places of, of resistance, of unsettledness, of dissatisfaction. This is what we come to see and know in our meditation. And if we're honest and willing to look, willing to use that clarity that gets revealed, the wisdom is there of what needs to be let go of, what needs to be shifted or changed. But only if we continue to practice. And this is again this sense of movement, of journey, that I think is so essential. The Buddha often used the imagery of, of our spiritual practice as a path, 
the Noble Eightfold Path, the fourth, Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering in life, there's a cause of suffering, which is, which is um, greed and attachment, um, there's a possibility of the end of suffering, and there's a path, there's a path leading to that end of suffering, the Noble Eightfold Path. So this imagery of path, what's essential in there is the movement. The Buddha often gave us these great maps for our practice, whether it's the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. But he said again and again, I'm just showing you the map. You have to make the journey. You have to take those steps towards this kind of waking up that's possible. You actually have to do the work of cultivation. Because when you hear this, this uh, group of teachings, the, the Four Noble Truths, and the first one is the truth of suffering, it's like, what's noble about suffering? Well, um, one of my co-teachers, Gil Fronsdell, I think put it beautifully, it's noble when you find a path in it, when it leads you to practice, and that practice leads you to the end of suffering. That's what's noble in the Eightfold, in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, is finding that path and the movement that comes out of that, the change, the growth, the, the, the cultivation that comes out of that. A little while ago I read a, a book by Stephen Batchelor, who's someone, a friend who comes and teaches here quite regularly, called Living with the Devil. And uh, in Buddhism there's a, a, a personification of the devil, it's called Mara. And uh, Mara was always coming to the Buddha, coming to various monks and nuns and cr trying to dissuade them from their path and their practice. But in this book, one of the images that I really liked that Stephen spoke about was the devil is um, portrayed in Dante's Inferno, where it wasn't a fiery kind of devil. My main association with the devil is, you know, hellfire and brimstone and, and lots of fire. In Dante's Inferno, in one of the circles of hell, the devil is frozen. He's actually frozen from his waist down in this icy wasteland. And I just thought that was such a, a good analogy for, for our obstacles. It's not so much the heat and the fire, it's the stuckness that is our biggest obstacle. And what frees us is movement, is actually having this sense of possibility. And this path offers that sense of possibility that change is really possible if we pay attention, if we actually begin to um, be clear about what it is that we're cultivating in our life. What we start to see as we practice meditation is we're acting out of intention all the time. It's said that intention is one of the um, universal factors, meaning it's always present. But most of the time we don't realize it. We don't realize the intentions that are the underpinnings of the actions that we make. You know, I just finished reading a very interesting book called The Hidden Brain um, by a journalist, Shankar Vedantam. He's a journalist for the Washington Post, wrote this book called The Hidden Brain. And it's all about, um, his thesis is that we, actually, we think that we're very rational, logical beings, governed by common sense, 
and using reasoning and um, clarity to make our decisions and to make our way in the world. And he said, it's actually not true very much at all. That what's going on is what, it, what's being acted on a lot is what he called the hidden brain, really in some ways another term for it's unconscious or subconscious, but that we're constantly taking in this information, filtering it, through layers of projection and perception that we're totally unaware of, and out of that, making these decisions that we think are so rational or that we're so sure of or clear about. One of the um, examples he gave of this in the beginning of the book, what he does is report on and collate all of the research that, that he could find that was speaking to this idea of of what actually influences us in our decision-making process and our attitudes towards the world. I really like this one. This researcher um, studied a tea room in an office in Nottingham in England. So it's just a you know regular office. Nottingham's a middle-sized city in England, a regular office, a tea room in the office, like many tea rooms, was on an honor system where there was a piece of paper printed where it had the price of everything. You know, coffee was 75p, tea was 50p, milk was 25p, a cookie was 20p or whatever, and there was a box and people had to put the money in for how much, you know, how much they were drinking or eating every day. And so she charted how much money was put in that, that box through this system uh, over a number of months, week after week. And she, they showed the chart in the book and instead of being, you know, kind of random up and down, it would peak high very sharply and plateau along that, and then it would drop precipitously and be low for a week, and then it would go up the next week, and it just was up and down, up and down, like this. Then the, the, the author told us what this researcher had done. What she had done on this sign that uh, told the price of everything the top she would have an image. And some weeks it was just an innocuous kind of image of some flowers or a graphic or something. On the other weeks, it was a pair of watching eyes. <laughs> just, cut, just cut out of the eyes. The weeks the ha there was the paper with the watching eyes, guess what happened? The people in the office couldn't have told you that the paper was changing let alone that there was an image of eyes there. None of them ever recognized that that image was there. But the fact that they had this idea subconsciously that someone was watching them, they were much more honest. This is just a small example of what's happening to us all the time. And the author talks about how, you know, most of our fears and the, the way we order the world and all the money the government spends are dealing with terrorist attacks, murders, and violent crime, yet we're much more likely to be killed by a heart attack, suicide, or someone we know. It's all of these actually quite irrational fears that drive a lot of our uh, both personal but also um, you know, whole system-wide cultural movements of where we put money and attention. And it, it just pointed again and again to how a lot of our prejudices, how we relate to people, racism, judging of others, is often happening on this subliminal kind of level. And we're acting on cues we don't even realize. 
The Buddha was aware of this. He called this process sanya or perception and considered it so important he made it one of what he called the five aggregates or sankharas, uh, khandas, these five constituent parts of experience. He said, we need to pay attention to this. And the way to do it is through mindfulness. This author says, you know, what we need to do is use reasoning and logic to infer that this is happening. I think that's a good start, but I think the most important thing is our mindfulness practice, is actually tuning into what's happening as we go through our day. What are we paying attention to? What's sort of lodging in our hearts and minds? Most of the time we're so busy we don't notice that it's happening. It's only if we settle down and pay attention that we begin to actually understand this process of the subconscious, unconscious, subliminal input that's happening all the time and how out of that we're creating intentions and, and acting in the world. So paying attention to both the perceptions Allowing for this possibility, what's actually going on here? As we sit, and the longer we sit, the quieter we get, the more we might be able to begin to notice this. And then as we move through the world, beginning to pay attention, what's my intention? And, you know, from the smallest gesture to the biggest decisions we make in our life. And of course, we don't want to go crazy trying to pay attention to every intention that we have, because there as I said, uh, supposedly happening all the time, but allowing us to take the time, using our mindfulness practice to actually be present, to actually know what's happening, and be willing to be honest with ourselves. Those little rubs, those little niggles at the back of the mind that we often skate over, perhaps that's something we need to pay attention to. Perhaps that's something that actually is going to influence us much more than we think it might. So to make time in this coming year for whatever practice serves you, for whatever actually allows you to be present, I think that's, if you want to term it a resolution or an attitude, that I think is really helpful. And out of the intention to be present, to be more alive, to be more fully in our experience. We can't know what might evolve out of that. Anything is possible. But I think much more realistic, much more helpful than, as I said earlier, some metric about a hundred of this or ten of that, more of this and less of that. But actually, can we learn to pay attention? Mindfulness is actually really in right now, you know. Spirit Rock is doing well, you know, people want what we're selling. I hate to use that term, uh, we're not selling anything. Um, but it's really popular, it's being taught in schools, in businesses, in health, in health in, uh, healthcare, and Kaiser is doing lots of mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's really quite happening. But I really knew it was happening when I read in Parade magazine the other day that Oprah on the cover and Oprah's getting into television. Did anyone read that? Did you see what, she, what, you know, it's like, what do you need to do? She's the most powerful, successful, wealthy woman on the planet almost, and now she's going to have her own television channel. But I was so struck by how she defined it. Two words, 
Did anyone read that? No. Mindful television. <laughs> More power to Oprah. Oprah, that's what I, when I read that. Mindful television. It's, but to be realistic, no one is mindful all the time. I don't pretend to be mindful. I don't even try to be mindful all the time. But I call it mindfulness when it matters. When something happens, when something um, is important, or I, you know, I'm impacted by something, or I'm, as I said, if I'm you know, tuning in in my daily meditation, what's really you know, going on for me, that's when it matters. I remember teaching a, on a two-month retreat a little while ago, and a, a student who'd been doing quite well came, you know, she'd been, you know, really very consistent in her practice and, and uh, um, developing and practicing diligently. And she was really bereft, saying, I, you know, I, I'm just, I'm so dis, uh, dis, disheartened. I'm just not getting it. I'm not doing it right. And I said, what do you mean? I think you're doing great. She said, well, I'm not mindful all the time. And I said, what do you mean, mindful? No one's mindful all the time. And she said, what do you mean? You're always telling us to be mindful about everything. I said, yes, but no one actually is. You know, that's just the idea. That's the ideal. You know, we try. That's the motivation. But no one's mindful all the time. But mindfulness when it matters, that's what I think is important. That's what I wish for you in this coming year is that we can have mindfulness when it matters. And whatever you need to do to support that <coughs> in your life, coming here to Spirit Rock, finding, developing your own practice, a daily practice, a weekly practice, the support of like-minded community, that's what we can cultivate. That's a direction that I feel we can be full-hearted about and really know that it's going to lead to a greater sense of well-being, a greater sense of contentment and happiness, and that this is possible for all of us. I don't have any doubt that this path and this practice, as the Buddha said time and time again, goes in one direction only, to the direction of greater happiness, a greater sense of well-being, and a greater sense of actually knowing oneself, and um, a, a sense of joy in that of really, as we begin to truly accept who we are, as we are, just as we are, what comes out of that is a sense of well-being that, that radiates and impacts all of those around us. And so life can become more full of joy and gratitude and appreciation. These, this, this is possible for all of us, I don't have any doubt. But it only happens if we undertake that journey, not to get somewhere in the far distant future, but the journey that begins and ends right here and now in being present for what is, and knowing and trusting that, knowing ourselves in this intimate way that meditation reveals and our practice deepens. So I had tons of notes that I didn't actually use very much, so... Uh, but I think I'll just uh, allow a few moments um, if there are any questions or comments about anything you've heard tonight. I was going to do a whole thing with a practice, but I've run out of time, so we won't do that. But any questions or comments about your um, motivation for practice, for being here at Spirit Rock, something that you're taking up 
for the new year that you think is going to be, you know, helpful and healthful for you that you'd like to share with the group? Has anyone reflected on this and want to share something with the group? Yes, thank you. Can you the, why don't you take the microphone so we can hear? Could you talk a little about aspiration and accepting yourself as well? Because mm -hmm. it seems a little contradictory. It does. That's a great question. It's the ultimate conundrum. And, and our spirit, spiritual practice is full of these kind of paradoxes where we have to accept things the way they are to actually be open to the change that's always happening. But this is the heart of equanimity, is accepting where we are, what we are, who we are, just as we are. But that actually allows us to get close enough to that, to be intimate with that, that true change is then possible. Because it's then not out of rejection, or judging, or limitation, or scarcity. It's actually the way things are. That's the place of possibility. If we can come into alignment with that, then movement is possible. If we're not accepting who we are, oh, only if I'm like this, or if I was more generous or more kind, that's already starting from a place of limitation. Suzuki Roshi, the great Zen teacher, has this line I love. He says, you're perfect just as you are, but there's always room for improvement. <laughs> and we, we really have to kind of be in that place. Perfect as you are, room for improvement start from this complete acceptance because what is, is. You are exactly the way you are. This is exactly the way it is. Life, the planet, the atmosphere, global warming, everything is the way it is right now. Truly accepting that with an open heart allows a possibility of change. So it's this conundrum that, as I said, is at the core of any spiritual um, opening is like this really deep acceptance and the possibility of whatever, of growth, of change, of freedom, of happiness. They both have to be there, both the acceptance and the possibility of whatever, cultivation, growth, out of the acceptance. Thank you. It's a good question. Anyone contemplated on aspirations, motivations that you'd like? There's something powerful about sharing something like that, saying it out loud. What do you wish for yourself in the coming year in the form of an aspiration? Okay, thank you. One person here, so break the ice. May I be more mindful? Mm, lovely. <laughs> May it be so. Okay, well, any, anyone else this? Sean, here. Uh, I've been um, doing my 
Vipassana practice for about a year and a half, but I, I always let it go. And uh, I, I've, I've found myself here because I desperately need to develop patience, mm-hmm. um, particularly with my wife's ex, who seems to always find a way to make our life hell. Mm. <laughs> May you develop patience. And meditation is a great way because nothing happens. You just sit down. You know, it's not, not true. A lot can happen, but it's one of the paramis that get cultivated through practice. So I hope uh, you have more patience in this coming year. Okay, I know we should. Oh, do you want to share last, one last one? Yep, we have, we have time. I heard today on the radio that 100 people manacled themselves to the White House mm. in protest of the Afghan war. Mm. That it is the longest war with the greatest fa- amount of fatalities mm. that has ever happened mm. to us. Mm. And these are the kinds of things I used to do a lot of. Mm-hmm. But I find myself, well, physically, not always mm-hmm. able to. Mm-hmm. But it's very frustrating mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And I feel a little bit useless mm. But I think there are many ways that you can support that kind of activism. You don't have to be on the front lines, just, you know, obviously financially, but... Just, you know, whatever kind of sharing you can do, people value that, to know that people are appreciating the action that they're doing. So, you know, I, don't, I think you can find ways. Yeah, we can, you know, and, and even just the appreciation of that. I, I think that actually, you know, that it, they've touched you in a way. That's, that's already making a difference, so, yeah. Yeah, for the Afghan people, I mean, whether, you know, we consider it a long and difficult war, they've been under siege for how many years? I mean, it's just a tragedy for that, that whole country that, that had, is such a beautiful place and beautiful people. Anyway, I see it, it's time for us to leave. I just want to end with a few minutes of <clears throat> reflecting on the blessings in our life as we go into this new year and... Uh, share those blessings with others. So just taking a moment to reflect on everything that you've received in these last days and this last year, the gifts, the sharings, even the difficulties have in a way been teachers for us. And so we reflect on the blessings of our life, the things that touch us, that teach us, that open our hearts. And feel a sense of gratitude for these blessings, to have enough to eat, to breathe relatively clean air, to be able to hear the Dhamma. These are blessings in our lives. And being here tonight is also a blessing to practice with like-minded people. And there's merit that gets accumulated, that gets developed 
in our hearts, in our minds, from this kind of practice, from these kinds of reflections. It is traditional at the end of a period of practice to offer this merit generously and wholeheartedly. So it's not just for our own well-being, but for the well-being of all beings in all situations, people who are hungry, who are suffering in wars and in famines, challenging places in their lives. We spread the blessings of our life and the merit of our practice with this wish of dedication, of merit, so that our practice and our lives really serve the well-being and the benefit of all beings everywhere, that all beings be happy, all beings be peaceful, all beings be free. Thank you for teaching us. So thank you for your attention this evening. It was lovely sharing this time with you. Our last ritual injunction is one leaves Spirit Rock is please turn right when you leave and then don't do a U-turn. We had a complaint from an, a neighbor and a dangerous situation there on railroad. So please just be patient. Go the long way round, the slow way round, and everyone will get home safely. So thank you. Hopefully see you again on the Dharma Trail. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.